There it is. Oh, Danny Moses, looking all serious there. It is April 18th. It is tax day. It is market call here. I'm Dan Nathan. That's Danny Moses. You know him. You love him from the On The Tape podcast. And as Guy would say, the big chill fame. But I, we kind of put that thing to rest. Didn't we, Danny? The big chill thing, that's over, right? Because Guy he finally watched the, he watched the movie. He, watched um, he had a little bit of a cry. Uh, you laughed. He cried. Uh, that was great. Um, okay. Today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity and fact set financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's right here at Risk Versal Media. If you're watching this right now, you're watching it on YouTube, but subscribe to that. There you go. Jacob's got a little, uh, little ticker thing down there. All right, Danny. Thank Thanks for stepping in here today for Guy Adami. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those days in the market where it's like, I don't know, we're like the S&P, we're going to hit all the futures. We're going to kind of focus on the charts in a second here, but it feels like it doesn't have um, a bit of a theme here. You know what I mean? We've gotten through some of the bank earnings. I know we want to talk about that um, a little bit later. What's, what's your take here? Because, I mean, for me, things are about to get real um, as far as earnings. You've been saying that on the podcast for a while, we've been obsessed with the macro. We've been obsessed with the Fed. But now, really, what's going to be most important, going to take center stage, is what companies are saying and the sort of visibility that they have. Yeah, I think equity bulls are kind of hoping the banks aren't great, have a little bit of a drag effect yeah. on both the markets and the economy, so that the Fed will stop. In the last few days, the banks have been fine, kind of in line, maybe a little bit better. And again, this just started in mid-March, remember, the whole debacle. So you weren't going to start to see an impact really yet in Q1. You did see the big banks get bigger as far as it goes for deposit gathering and so forth. But I think now we've seen Fed fund futures now ramp into a raise here uh, for May 3rd. And that's going to put a cap, I think, on the market for now, because I think people that are looking for kind of a soft landing or some landing at all, we're hopeful that we'll get a nice balance. And now it appears that things aren't, quote, breaking, at least today. So that'll lead people to believe the Fed's going to go. And I think that's kind of going to cap the equity market here. And we're having trouble getting through that kind of 4180 level, right, which was the high that we set several weeks ago, which I still believe is kind of the big number to kind of get through here. So a lot more earnings to go through, Dan. But I think as expected, maybe to slightly better what we've seen so far. Yeah. And let's pull up the CME Fed Watch tool here. That's something we quote a lot. And I think to your point, Danny, like we've just seen a, a rate move here. You know, a lot of the Fed speak has been particularly hawkish. And the fact that we haven't seen, um, you know, data, a lot of that we talked about CPI and PPI last week, you know, neither one of them surprised meaningfully, right, one way or the other. And so we've seen Fed speak that's been hawkish. We've seen the probability of that May 25 basis point hike um, increase here. And so, you know, is a pause on the table as we get into June in the summer? Sure. Okay, fine. Um, and like, you know, we're going to be above 5% in Fed funds. We also have a CPI that's at 5%. Um, we talked a lot about that on Fridays on the tape podcast. Um, let's talk about sentiment because this is really important here. And, you know, this is a, a headline from Bloomberg here and it's quoting, um, you know, the, the uh, Bank of America, uh, they do those fund manager surveys here. Investors are the most bearish on stocks versus bonds since 09. And I think versus bonds is kind of the important part here. Danny, when you see data sets like this, okay, what does that kind of make you think? Because a lot of people think 09 and they still think the financial crisis. I think 09 and I remember a 
bottom that happened in the market in early 09, right, in the spring. And then I remember everybody and their mother hating the rallies, saying the bear market is not over, right? But that was it. And we never really retested. And so a lot of bulls, you know, are suggesting that that might be the sort of sentiment environment we're in right now after last year. And and maybe to your point about uh, a recession, whether it happens or not, you know, a lot of the bulls are saying that maybe those October lows priced in a recession, even a mild one that we would have in 2023. Well, let's keep in mind in 2009, rates were zero. There was yep. no real alternative to equities. Bonds present a nice alternative to equities with yields of four to 5% on an annualized basis. So that's a big difference. I'll note that BlackRock is now going against their 60-40 recommendation. The 60-40 trade, which is 60% equity, 40% bonds, is up something like 6.3% this year after being down 17% last year. That's been kind of the traditional allocation. And it's ironic to me that BlackRock is actually saying, go sector specific, look at healthcare and energy, almost become a stock pick. We're talking about the largest ETF, man ETF manager in the world. And then within the fixed income world, they're saying inflation-linked bonds, right? And they're saying short-term bonds. And so they're being now very strategic in nature also. So I just think, yes, I think we're going to get back to the stock pickers market, which you've kind of lost during kind of Q1, right? Where money just was kind of flowing into sector. But I do think when you see something like that in 2009, there was no alternative. So that was true cash. And so I think it's going to take a lot for people to pull money out of the bond market thinking they can achieve a better risk adjusted return on the equity markets from here, Dan. All right. So here's a question. And this came from a friend of mine who's not in the markets. Okay. Um, like professionally. Okay. But he is in as far as, um, as an individual and, you know, he's sitting on a bunch of cash. He wants to get back into equities. He does own a lot of equities, but right now he's sitting in six month treasuries. Okay. So here's the question for you, Danny Moses. He asked me all of a sudden, Okay, if this debt ceiling thing becomes a real thing, right? And if we get to a certain 2011 sort of situation where it really gets to the brink, where there's a debt downgrade, where there is fear that the US will not be able to pay its obligations, right? Because of this silly rule about the, the, the debt ceiling. What does that mean for treasuries? Like, like, what does it mean? Because there's another thing, Danny, going back to 2011, the Fed was engaged with quantitative easing back then, and they are engaged with quantitative tightening right now. So for all this money that is moved into treasuries because of the alternative, because of the yield, what would a tripping of the debt ceiling and possibly a downgrade, right, of the U.S. government's rating, what would it mean for treasury? What would you think the knee-jerk reaction, or at least how will, how will market participants um how will they position into an 11th hour sort of situation, which is not too different than we had in 2011? I think maybe the, maybe the initial move is yields move higher, bond prices move lower. But I think you would quickly see a reversion to people buying as many bonds as they could. Correct. Because at the end of the day, if there's no faith in the U.S. bonds, then there's no faith in the U.S. equity markets. So money will come out of equities, in my opinion, and start buying bonds. Because if it does trip, if something does happen and we technically default, it'll only be for a short period of time. We've seen kind of the first shot across the bow here. Kevin McCarthy spoke yesterday down at the New York Stock Exchange saying, we're going to pass our own version of the bill, which some of that stuff will never pass, obviously, in the Senate. So they're going to fire the first shot kind of across the bow, but at least things are in motion. So when you, it's hard for me to even intellectually conceive that occurring. Yes, in 2000, 2011, again, different time period, right? Let's talk about QE versus QT to the point you just made. But I do think if you want to be dovish about it it would again 
what maybe some equity investors want is it forces the Fed potentially to do something that they weren't planning on, whether that stop raising or even potentially cutting or officially stopping, to your point, Dan, the quantitative tightening cycle. So that's a very hard thing to predict. But any of that stuff that would occur, Dan, at the end of the day, if you can't buy U.S. Treasuries, there's a big problem because throw everything else out. Yeah, and I think your point's a good one. Normally, in a situation like that, investors would flight, they would flock to buying treasuries, right? Because it's deemed to be the safest sort of asset out there. And you know, if you look at the chart of the um, of U.S. Treasury yield, the ten year back in two thousand and eleven, um, you know, it started the year um, ah, three three thirty. It maybe made a high at like three sixty or something like that. Danny closed the year below two percent. Okay, so um, and that thing went for um, a little bit there. So. That's kind of interesting. All right, let's let's talk about whatever that alternative is to bonds. Let's look at S&P 500, the futures here, because you just quoted the level. It was 4180. That was the high from early February. I will tell you this. Yesterday on the program, um, I highlighted just how cheap at the money puts, okay, in the S&P 500 is looking out to May 5th. We know we're going to have more earnings. We're going to have uh, a jobs report on, on Friday, May 5th. We're going to have uh, that week. We're also going to have Apple's earnings, and then we have a Fed meeting. The at-the-money put, Danny, you ready for this, is 1.1% on May 5th. Think about that, okay? So think about that. And so when you think about this chart and you look at that level that we've drawn here is just above that high from early February, if you were looking to kind of express a view in the futures market, okay, you would just stop if you were looking to, to, to short the minis right above those levels, right above those highs, right? What, what would you be doing there? If you're looking to short it, you're looking to play for a move back towards that 200-day moving average down there, just below 4,000, right? And then you'd stop it just above those prior highs. It's kind of a very similar trade here, um, you know, just using a, a tight sort of stop. I know that you like to look at the charts here. There's another way to look at this chart. You could say to yourself, okay, maybe all the stuff that we've talked about here is in the markets, right? And maybe the Fed is going to pause or start to kind of slowly normalize rates a little bit. Maybe the economy is not going to have a worse than expected, you know, something worse than maybe a mild recession. And maybe that's what a bottom looks like in the S&P 500. Listen, it's hard for me to think that's what a bottom looks like given, and again, when we move from a 17 and a half multiple on earnings to an 18 and a half multiple on earnings, that's north of a 5% move, all things being equal in the S&P, right? So that's a substantial kind of move. But at the end of the day, whether it's 16 times, 17, 18, 19, it's kind of arbitrary because there's a camp that believes a soft landing and there's a camp that believes we're heading to recession. There are still, the, to me, the most important economic indicators, and that would be the labor market. I think is starting to show signs to me. And also, if you add in kind of the layoffs that have been announced that are out there or are on the come and still going to happen here, I think we'll get more during earnings season of that kind of outlook here, pretend that the economy is going to slow from here. And again, how much is it slow? What rate of change we see? I don't know. But either way, it does not justify, to me at least, where the equity markets are trading. So if you're asking me to pick a side, Dan, I'm going to choose lower from here. And that's not just being bearish, but that's just being objective, I think, on where things stand. And where the VIX now below 18 again, you know, we've talked about that as a level. It doesn't stay there for long. Danny, lining up. It almost 17. Right, below, it almost, 17. below 17. It almost scares me, Dan, how cheap those S&P puts are. Yeah. It makes you, I mean, I would never sell them, but it makes yeah. you almost like it's too good to be true. I could, but I agree as a punt or someone that has built up their portfolio here and likes the equities that they own and their quality. 
Not a bad decision here to buy S&P puts in my opinion. Yeah, listen, I mean, the flip side of that is, and one of the reasons why we love, I love Tuesdays because we get to talk about the futures. One of the beautiful things about trading futures is your ability to kind of place stops, right? And one of the reasons why we look at so many charts on Tuesdays is also because when you're trading futures and you're using stops, you actually want to look at technical levels, right? Because there's a lot of dealers who kind of keep an eye on these things. There's a lot of traders who hunt for spot uh, stops, that sort of thing, because they like to trip them off. And I got to tell you, you know, if you were to like to say, put that short on in the S&P futures, you were stop them above that February highs. Let's say they get through there. They may go for another two or 3%, that sort of thing. And so that's, you know, to me, I like to look at a chart and Carter does this every once in a while. Sometimes he'll just kind of trick us. He'll, he'll flip it around without the name on it, right? He'll turn it upside down. Is that what do you think it is? And so yeah. that chart looks pretty good right there. So to, to understand that if you're kind of betting against it, you're being a bit contrarian here. The last thing I want to say on sentiment here, here's a tweet from Carl Quintanilla from CNBC. Um, he's quoting a JP Morgan survey. Danny, look at this exhibit three. Where do you see S&P 500 at year end? Look at this, okay? You can do the math on this, all right? It's, it's, it's more than 65%. See the S and P 500, 3,500 or below, and you know where we are right now. We are trading at 4140 or something like that. I mean, that is unusually bearish, just like the data that we had from B of A here. Um, does that make you feel less comfortable being inclined to play for a move lower? Because it seems like everyone's on one side of the boat here. Well, look at the other side of that. Those two kind of go hand in hand. If you believe the ten-year, that's a pretty wide range, though, between uh, one and a half and four. So that's why does it, but below one and a half percent on the 10 year or no, sorry, below three and a half percent on the 10 year, 40 yeah. percent. Right. If you believe that, that means people believe there's an economic slowdown coming and therefore people are bearish, obviously, on the on the S&P 500. So that to me is a pretty bullish chart. If you want me to put my bullish equity hat on as an investor, yeah. there's that many people on the sidelines, how we started the show. And there's that many people that are in that camp. Something's got to give here quickly or the, to your point, Dan, the chase is going to come on and we will see. 4250 4300 so the same way i know we talked on a, on the tape podcast last thursday you and i were kind of going back and forth joking about a straddle you know buying a call and a put if a call is as cheap as the put which i assume that it is yep. you just quoted that not the worst call in the world cuz we're going to have to break one way or another but that's a very bullish uh stat right there that you're showing me so yeah and then the other one let's just look at the nasdaq uh, the e mini futures here because you know um, we know that a handful of stocks have kind of been holding this thing up. But on a day like today, where I don't see any of the major names, I see Microsoft down 30 bips. I see Apple up 40 bips. I see Amazon down a half percent. Google's down 1%. But look at this NVIDIA. And, and NVIDIA is not a small name here, people. It's trading at new, I think, 52-week highs today. It's up 90% of the year. It's trading up 3%. HSBC. When's the last time you've quoted uh, HSBC, Danny? Um, they had a double upgrade. They were the last sell rating on the stock. So they went from sell to like a strong buy or something like that. And, you know, you look at this NASDAQ, you look at those levels in the futures here, and that's a pretty constructive looking chart, right? Like there's no if, ands, or buts about it. And so tonight we're gonna have netflix and to me that's not a huge name and i think it's very stock specific when you think about just kind of the metrics that they solve to and some of the media players that they're playing against i don't really see that as tech we're gonna over the next week and a half get some some of the big platform names and that's going to be the driver and then some of the more cyclically oriented names like in the semis and to me that will determine whether we get back below that kind of line that we've drawn in the sand there and then that 200 day moving average back there that would be healthy. I think the, the thing about a 17 VIX, Danny, right now, especially even with those sentiment readings, like we're saying, they're saying a, a, a slightly opposite thing here. 
I don't know, man. It just doesn't feel like without any fear in the market, it's not like you're getting a bargain. You just talked about multiple expansion for about 18 to 19 times, and we haven't even had the recession yet. And when you think about the fact set data that we quote all the time from John Butters, I mean, if you're looking at forward you know, earnings multiples for the S&P 500, we're trading right near the five and 10-year averages. Does that make a whole heck of a lot of sense, especially with where rates are right now? Let me just take the NVIDIA upgrade, which I saw it. And, you know, you go from a price target of 180 to 360. That's just semantics. That's just for people out there. If you go to your research director and you're a sell side analyst, you say, hey, I want to upgrade this. Well, you got to put your target, obviously, above where the stock is. And so there was nothing that happened overnight that would justify a change in that other than he just totally capitulated or she totally capitulated. I don't know who covers it there. So that's one thing. On the other, Dan, everything's lined up where I think you know, when you when you go to the casino and you're at the roulette wheel and the dealer spins the ball around, you have a few minutes, you have a few seconds to, to place your bets. And then the hand goes over the goes over the wheel like no more bets. Yep. I think all the bets have basically been made here. But all the charts that you're showing are at the point where either going to move higher or lower. They're not going to stay here. It's very hard for me to see a flat line from here. And it's also very hard for me to see volatility, at least over you know, even a call it a month period remaining at that level with everything going on in the world. And yes, are people now saying, oh, I knew the debt ceiling wouldn't be an issue because you had one day where Kevin McCarthy spoke and he's like, hey, we're going to pass it. I don't think people understand the jockeying that goes on with that. If that was a reason to kind of rally the markets or people that wanted that were hesitant to put money in the market because of it, people that hasn't cleared out. So there's a lot more to come. And again, most companies, like let's take example what State Street did yesterday. The reason State Street stock STT got hammered, and I know we don't have the chart of it, was because they didn't tell the street ahead of time what was happening. They weren't yeah. communicating. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a negative surprise, right? And then even on the quarter, on the call, they said, yeah, in the end of March, and the beginning of April wasn't great either. So that was a readjustment. Most of these other earnings that we've seen, we talked about it coming in, 106 of the 500 companies had already basically pre-announced or given you the numbers that they were going to be. A lot of the stuff that's been happening in Bankland is pretty transparent. You can see where deposits are going. It wasn't unexpected. I think we're going to now enter the phase where kind of potluck surprise as far as earnings go, right? And I think the fear in the markets that have been that the banking system was going to, quote, collapse, which was never our thesis at all. Our thesis is over a period of time that will rain in lending is still what I believe is intact. But you didn't get that on the conference call. You're not going to get that on these quarters. So long-winded way of saying, Dan, I think that we've seen probably the best or at least the kind of relief rally, if, if you want to yeah. call it, within the sector, because we've seen the banks already go. And now I think we're going to enter kind of the throes of, of what really matters here and bottom-up analysis of these companies. And it does not, I don't think it will justify these levels on the S&P. Yeah, real, real quickly, let's throw up the split screen here. There's two headlines. Um, Goldman reported this morning. Bank of America reported this this, this morning. It's kind of an interesting split screen. So Goldman traders miss out on Wall Street's fixed income boom. On one side, B of A, tops estimates as fixing some traders' fuel profits. And we've been talking about this on the pod for the last couple of weeks. When you think about where these two banks that are very different banks, right, and where they're exposed, you know, um, you know in, in a different market when the IPO business comes back, when M&A comes back when you know like trading and and risk assets um you know what i mean other customer bases is is, is kind of more normal you know a, a firm like goldman's going to do really really well right and and right now you know bank america um i think a lot of these firms you know probably did well from some of the stuff that they were able to see some of the deposits they were able to gain during this last period what were your, what was your quick takeaway on just these two 
these two names and what they had to say because Bank America seemed pretty pretty comfortable with what they thought the health of the consumer is right now. Goldman really doesn't have that look through. Well, Goldman, in the area they do have the consumer, they continue to have issues, right? They took a write down in their markets, the Green Sky Holdings, they took a write down there. They've been distracted, to say the least, on their core business. And so, you know, the I. You know the IPO market's not hot. You know the M&A market's not hot. So with Goldman still focusing on that, they didn't have as much trading success, obviously, on the fixed income side. Bank America, on the other hand, we were talking about this a month ago. There's been options pricing in a dividend cut, options pricing in something going to happen in Bank America. Again, it didn't, quote, blow up on the call, so it's okay. And of course, they're going to benefit because the big banks are getting bigger, the deposits coming in. They still saw a shift away from, you know, into interest bearing that's going to squeeze their margins longer term. The consumer is still, quote, okay. Spending patterns look good, not great. And so, again, it's not up a lot. It's down a lot. It's kind of a no man's land here, I believe, Bank America stock, but it's, quote, safe. Goldman Sachs still is cleaning up. And so if you want a pure bank, and we talked about this, when you look at the XLF, why you should, you know, go long and short names within them, because they all face different challenges and they all face a different cycle. So, again, Bank America was fine. Asset gathering was fine. And the trading was decent, probably better than expected. Goldman was the opposite. But, you know, Goldman trades, Dan, at what, 1.2 times tangible book value. It's not that expensive. It's probably fine. So, again, completely different complexion for those two companies. Yeah, and I'll just say this. Lastly, on the banks, I mean, the KRE is a disaster today. It's down 2%. And there seems to be a lot of continued pressure on the regionals here. And it just really feels like there's another shoe to drop. Look at some of these life insurers. They still trade um, pretty horribly here. So I think some of the enthusiasm or excitement that the major money center banks or the investment banks weren't as bad as some people would have expected. It's interesting that JP is really the only one that made up any meaningful ground here. And this is an area that I kind of want to look to put back out as we get further into Q2 um, for whatever that's worth. Um, one last one here, Danny. I don't know. I think it was Morgan Stanley um, was out this morning saying that Blackstone could be um, added to the S&P 500. The stock was up 5 6%. Look at this chart that we have here. Look at the well-defined uh, downtrend. That was from the all-time high in June, uh, early 2022. It almost got up there today. It was above its 200 moving uh, average there briefly here. They're going to report, I think, on Thursday morning. And the focus here has been their exposure to commercial real estate, right? I think we talked about it on the pod a couple of weeks ago. They had um, a sale of a, a building complex out in California, like 36% below what they paid for, something like that. So this is kind of a story that we've been tracking a little bit. It's going to be interesting as we start to see increased defaults and, and kind of short sales and all this sort of stuff. Thoughts, thoughts when you see a chart like this and a company that you know has the uh, interest rate exposure, the commercial real estate exposure, the default exposure, all the, all the above. Yeah, listen, the reason the regionals are underperforming is because all the commentary from the banks, even the bigger ones that don't have a huge exposure on a percentage basis to commercial real estate, but they have it, are saying negative things about commercial real estate. There's four and a half trillion dollars worth of commercial real estate debt out there, of which this year alone, 270 billion is coming up for refi within office properties, right? Which a lot of where these people are, where people are exposed. And so there's a huge amount out there. Blackstone, we talked about from a fee generating perspective, I mean, from, you know, locked up money, 10 year type management fee money, you can model it pretty well. That being said, we know the issues they've had in their B REIT, so to speak, of people of cutting off redemptions and gating redemptions at 5%, obviously per quarter kind of maximum. So it'll be interesting what they say. They're probably still raising money into various real estate portfolios. It's a great company, but obviously this run, if the reason is on today's move that they're gonna quote be added to the S&P, to me, that's te technical in nature here. 
And I yeah. think this is a great opportunity to not be long into the quarter. But again, these are pretty predictable business models, right? You know what their assets are. You know, you know what their fee income is because you can see the realizations which have occurred in their portfolio. So there's not a lot left to the imagination as far as I'm concerned on Blackstone reporting because people that do their work can kind of predict it. What will be interesting is what they say about the real estate market, Dan, to your point, specifically commercial. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't expect them, um, given the way that they mark things in their B-read, I wouldn't expect them to be particularly honest if they're pretty downbeat on it. They don't really have any incentive to do that at the moment. They've had to put up gates uh, you know, for, for investors who want their money back, and that's going back to last fall. All right, let's talk about the U.S. dollar here, because this is going to set the stage for maybe a, a conversation on gold and, and Bitcoin here. And you know, if we look at the Dixie or we look at the futures um, that trade on the U.S. dollar index, this one's kind of interesting to me, Danny. So in February, February, the dollar was rallying, okay, after just getting demolished from that high um, late last year, back in the fall, it was basically almost 115, and it got down nearly to 100, and it had that little bit of a rally. And then all of a sudden, we have this regional banking crisis here, and I think the expectation was, right, that the Fed would start to ease, or at least they would be um, less inclined to continue to raise. And the dollar sold off pretty hard here, right? So it's at 101 and a half or so. You look at that, it's kind of a match low from that early sort of February low. And I look at this and I say, all right, I got a 200-day moving average up there just above 106. I have that March high um, just below that, right, 105 and a half or so. I see where this double bottom is. I think I want to play for a bounce here. So like using the futures again, I would look to trade this thing. I want to risk one to possibly make four or five the upside. And why do I like using futures to do this? Because I can place a stop at a technical level just below that double bottom or so. So maybe you want to keep it really tight if it's trading at 101 and a half here. Maybe you want to do 100.50 as your stop to the downside and look for a move back towards that kind of 105, 106 level or so. And then what I would continue to do here, if it starts going in the direction that I want it to, I'd continue to raise that stop, right? And so if you keep seeing the price going in your direction and you keep raising the stop, you're basically locking in whatever gains or you're minimizing the potential loss. So I like the risk reward here, especially if you think that maybe the move that we've seen in the dollar is already anticipating the Fed at the May meeting, suggesting that, okay, they went 25, but maybe the language is going to suggest they pause. And that's not exactly the thing that crushes the dollar. Because to me, I almost think that that's kind of worked into the price right here at this level, which I think is important level, that psychologically 100 level, Danny. Yeah, listen, we've talked about it's the euro and the yen are the two biggest inputs to this what you're looking at here on, on the dollar here. And if you're bearish on the S&P, um, you, you kind of have to be bullish here on the dollar, in my opinion, because what's the one thing that's made the S&P rally? To your point, has been the belief that the Fed is probably done or 25 yeah. pips and done. I mean, even today, Goldman Sachs came out and said that the ECB, they believe, will go another 25 basis points more than they had originally thought. I think they were, thought they were going to stop at three and a half percent. They may go to three, seven, five. All of a sudden, you have this complacency in the markets that may allow central bankers to be a bit more hawkish than they had expected. To me, that does not portend well, potentially, for the U.S. dollar. In terms of it weakening from here, I actually think it's going to strengthen. So if I think about the run that's gold had, that gold has had, and I'm obviously very bullish on it for many other reasons other than just the U.S. Mm -hmm. dollar, it's hard to sit here and say with a straight face, if I think the DXY is going to go to 105, that gold's not going to retreat somewhat because it probably will just on a knee-jerk reaction. But I, I think the dollar doesn't have much more 
downside from here. And I think, Dan, the debt ceiling issue is having a direct impact on the dollar as well. Yeah. If we get, if we get that resolved, the value of the dollar, I would think, inherently would move higher as well. Yeah, and, and, and let's just pull up this gold chart really quickly here because you get you and Guy have been kind of all over this move of late. And so the idea of playing for a back and fill makes some sense. We, we've introduced a trade using the futures, again, using sort of tight stops here. You know, Guy was talking about it last week. You know, I would almost kind of have a stop at that kind of February high, somewhere like 1960 um, or so. I know that you guys think there's a whole host of reasons why this thing could just break out above what was that kind of double top ish level just above um 2000 where we just were going all the way back to last year or so but to me gold definitely looks interesting if it were to back and fill a little bit because i'm not in the belief that we're going to wake up one day it's going to be up you know 200 points or something like that i think it's one of these things that trades um very technically all right last thing before we get out of here danny we've also been talking a lot about oil that week dollar right has benefited oil you know we did a trade idea here we we're looking at that 200 day moving average we we're looking at the resistance level in the futures that you see right here you know it's having a tough time as it should right here it feels like it could break either way one 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 way or the other do you think this is a function of the dollar do you think it's a function of expectations about just kind of weak demand in a, in a, in a meandering economy i think it's no man's land again yeah. it's trading on OPEC cuts, yep. right? It, it, it's trading on economic slowdown potentially happening. Um, if we quote, if the Fed is actually done and the economy is okay, this oil, in my opinion, is going to go much higher because of all the geopolitical risk that's kind of associated with it. But again, I've said this, this is an input, I think, into earnings stream and cash flow streams for a lot of energy companies out there. And again, that's going to be, to me, the one sector that's going to shine right in this quarter that's going to, you know, about to report because even if you were to take oil to 70 or uh, $75, in my opinion, there's a lot yeah. of energy stocks out there that are cheap. And just a shout out on a coal company, BTU, that Porter and Vinny, as we know, have been buying. They were talking about capital return. They yep. announced over a billion dollar buyback. The entire market cap of the company is $3.6 billion, two and a half times EBITDA, four times earnings. So there's, there's stuff out like there where you start to look at charts like this that make sense no matter what the level of the commodity is. But Again, another chart that's in no man's land that's probably going to pick a direction, Dan. Yep. All right. Thanks, Danny Moses, for stepping in for Guy Adami. He will be back with me on the Friday on the Tape podcast. You can check him out every Friday on that. Thank you guys for, for being here. Sorry we didn't get to any of your comments. We had a lot of stuff to do. We had to get out of here um, on the screws, as Guy would say, at 1.30. So that's going to do it for today's Market Call. Thanks to CME Group for sponsoring this episode and to FactSet for providing all of the charts and data. Um, Carter and I will be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. So we'll see you then. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Danny Moses. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, Dan.